It's the Daily Talk Show episode 425. What's happening, guys? Kylie Eddie is in the building today. Uh, hello. <laughs> uh, Kylie and I first met, I reckon it was probably, what, five years ago? Yeah, it probably was five years ago. Yeah. Did and you also meet at VidCon? No, because no. that's okay. where Kylie and I met uh, last, not year. A, last year. <laughs> that's what you're doing. I appreciate uh, you coming and saying hello. And it's amazing. I had never met you, but familiar face, Kylie. Yeah, I think that's the power of social media Is as it? well because I had seen you on Josh's social and I knew who you were. I'm like, we're here. Yeah. I can yeah. just come, go and say hi. Mate, besties. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, you and I uh, met at a meetup that you were doing called Lean Filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And so you've you started this movement, leanfilmmaking.com, which was sort of connecting the startup world and everything that we've learned through that with technology and lean sort of methodologies mm-hmm. with filmmaking. And I think what was interesting about what you're doing is you, you've actually made an indie film. You spent 27-odd grand on a film. Yes, it was mm. micro-budget. I mean, which is funny because I think for people who aren't filmmakers, they hear 27 grand and they're like, Fuck, that's a lot of money. Is it? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a lot a, of money. It's a, yes, it is a lot of money, but when you're making a film, yeah. it is definitely not a feature film. Okay. Yeah. It is definitely not a lot of money. If it, what about if it's your own cash? Like It was, well, essentially it was my own cash. If we dive into it, part yeah. of the reason why I discovered Lean and Agile is that I really came up in the traditional film industry. Mm. Um, I studied film. I worked at uh, Disney Studios mm. in home entertainment for about five years in marketing and distribution. And I'd always had a passion to make my film and studied screenwriting at RMIT mm. and, you know, did all the things that I was meant to do, made a bunch of short films and I was just obsessed with making a feature film. But unfortunately I couldn't find any funding and I tried government funding, which essentially in this country we're a cottage industry that is really s- subsidised by the mm. government. Cottage, is that meaning like a small? small. Yeah, great. Very great. boutique. Yeah, great. And Josh wants to live in a cottage, yeah. so he's in the right <laughs> no, place. Cottage house? No, co- yeah, cottage industry sounds good. Cottage. Yeah, yeah, sounds fun. Cottage production. Yeah. Yeah. Until you're trying to raise money, then it's, <laughs> exactly. it's not so much fun. And yeah. so then I was like, well, it was I was literally on this cusp, and this is going to age me a little bit maybe, but I was one of the last feature films that was made under the last tax system, which was called the, the 10BA, which is how – Films used to b- get private investment in this country. It's mm. now moved to the producer offset, okay. um, which is a different kind of system. And so essentially I went around and I spruced to every single person that I knew yeah. to raise investors at a $5,000 level to try and get them to fund the film and they would get a 100% tax break oh, or whatever good. money that, that so they invested. The, the tax thing, I mean, we've... Tommy and I are extremely scared of asking anyone for money. <laughs> it's uh, hard to do. Yeah. I think it's I think it's just ca- like counter to what is, feels normal, right? Like I don't I think a lot of people experience that, but I definitely I think we definitely have. Yeah. I mean, we've only ever we, this is our first ask of people to give us money yeah, for which hoodies. we're spending most of it on <laughs> developing the oh, thing. I'm just going to say you're not asking money per se. You're you're selling a product. Yeah, exactly. yeah true. Which true. Is very so I'm not different. just saying give me cash, bro. But it does feel. Just even getting comfortable yeah. with asking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is part of the idea as creators now mm. in this new world. And even like when I was raising money in this way. So it was before the cusp of actually of crowdfunding. Mm. So crowdfunding platforms didn't exist. They kind of came about maybe 18 months to two years later in the very first instance, but still were not a recognized, mm. you know, they were still brand new. And so 
I think just this idea as a creator, if you want to have control of your future and if you want to have control of what you're producing, it's time to get really fucking comfortable with asking for support, whether that's financial, audience, attention. And ultimately, people are happy to do that if you take them on the journey. So, for example, the film that I made is one of the few... Uh, lesbian feature films that has ever been made in this country is very obscure. You will not what, be able to find it. How do you cl- – okay, if we wanted to make a lesbian feature film, just say <laughs> – okay, I don't want to put ideas into your head. <laughs> no, but I'm just no, – I'm just, no, I'm just I'm not, not like that. I was it's not being – It's favourite genre. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean what is the – what's the – is it having a quota of so it's just queer having women quick, in it? Well, just having lesbian characters. Okay, um, okay. So um, – Obviously, there's a whole kind of the cinema, independent cinema world that I was really interested and drawn to. Also, was trying to find reflections of myself on screen, which certainly even now are few and far between. Um, So, wanting to make queer cinema was really important to me, but trying to fund that Mm. was really hard until I tapped into a fantastic niche audience of um, really rich dykes who are lawyers and doctors <laughs> who also wanted to have it. So I basically ran these, um, I would have essentially, they were what you'd probably call patrons, yeah. where there were lesbian couples who were really supportive of what I was doing. They were working in kind of more corporate jobs mm. that they found kind of boring and I'm in a really arty job. They've got the money. I've got the fun. Yeah. And they wanted to just be part of the journey and really experience that. And, you know, so I, I basically sold, before it was really a thing, I guess, I essentially had a, for investors who invested, they could come down to the, I shot it in regional Victoria. Correct. They could come down for the day. I had interns taking them around. They got to eat lunch with the crew, which was, <laughs> oh my God, it's the dodgiest sandwiches, <laughs> sausage rolls. Loved it. Yeah. And just to be part of that on set. And it's like 5K well spent. They never made any of that money back. Yeah, like yeah. obviously they got their tax deduction and the yeah. idea was that we would recoup the money and they would be payback first. Mm. Yeah, the film never made a cent. Wow. I mean, the tax offset thing's interesting because it may, it does, I guess, make it a little bit easier to sell in regards mm. to like it gives you that one extra yes. thing of like, hey, this mm. is you – you can, you can give value to them in some way day yeah, if one. If you're a high-income earner and that mm. is important to you, because you could buy a piece of art and you can offset your art or you could buy or you can invest in something else. Mm. So it's just trying to tap into that market. So You're right. So mm. we could do that for the podcast? Is that? Yeah, I'm sure lesbians will be all over oh, this. No, 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 no. <laughs> Especially I mean, with your film idea. I mean, no, like, no, no. it's happening. I just meant uh, rich people looking to offset some money. Cash. Cash. Yeah. <laughs> I think that if you're going to do it, so I obviously had to legally set it up. I did have a lawyer and we had an, uh, like a quite a robust agreement and you have to stick to, there was a certain uh, amount of investment mm. um, law around it. You can't, as a business, just accept, uh, give that kind of tax break. Yeah, yeah. You have to be set yeah. up as a not-for-profit okay. or a special status um, or there is also, there's an organisation called ABAF, which is the Australian oh, Business and Culture Enterprise. Oh, I'm probably got that wrong. Yeah, and so essentially that is an organisation that if you're doing a cultural or arts uh, product and mm. you want to raise money through donations, mm. you can do it through their platform. It's essentially crowdfunding without providing any benefit other than the tax 
you can claim your tax donation. And a few saucy rolls <laughs> on if you wanna, set. If you want to add on the, on on the, the couch side. here at the Daily Talk Show. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's quite a lot of rules and regulations yeah, it around sounds, it, just to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you do have to, yeah, you do have to be very clear about yeah. what the benefits you're offering and what that. Obviously, if it's a donation, mm-hmm. you actually can't provide any benefits. Otherwise, it's not a donation. Okay. So you actually legally are not. So obviously, my background is also in producing and um, doing marketing and sponsorship, mm. basically asking for money for yeah. festivals. Yeah, yeah. And it's a similar kind of thing where if you're looking after patrons of a festival, mm-hmm. if you donate, you can't, that whole money is the donation. You can't expect reciprocal benefits that have a dollar value, i.e. tickets to opening night, oh, a gorgeous yeah. hoodie. But if like, you give, but if but you they give can me buy a, that separately. But if, I, but if you somehow on your doorstep was a nice hoodie, <laughs> <laughs> that's the idea. I, mean, I, mean, I won't tell the tax man if you don't. <laughs> I'm curious, like, so was that a good experience then? Like, did you walk away from that specifically from a funding point of view? I mean, you're currently writing the your lean filmmaking book and we had a read of the first um, pages that you've written on that and you talk about how it just fucking broke you. That whole, it really whole, did break me. A whole experience. But on the, the funding thing, do you look at that as a, as a positive thing? I guess I look at the whole experience and I think this is part of the challenge in independent cinema and obviously in other art forms. So up until the point that I'd made that, I had basically spent 15 years obsessing about making a feature film. Mm. So it's going to always be hard to live up to the Mm. expectations of what that is going to be and the experience of living through that. And also because it was very low budget and um, kind of a very niche story, it meant that a lot of that responsibility fell to me. So... I am really proud of what I achieved and the team that I worked with and what we all what we all did and it was an incredible learning experience so I have no regrets about that but it was literally one of the most stressful things I've ever done in my life and I basically gave up work like I didn't earn an income mm. for nearly 18 months wow and then of course the film I actually took the film so I was really kind of end to end so I I wrote the story with my best friend who also stars in it and I wrote the script and then all the way through to producing and directing it and then I took it to LA and San Francisco for festivals and sold it and I sold it to a distributor in LA for a very small amount of money um, and then shortly after they folded. It was oh, not no. my fault. Yeah. <laughs> that was not but my you fault. at least but got the cash. Was, no, I oh, did because really? I folded oh, before. Anyway, oh, no. by then I was so exhausted I just did not give a shit. Yeah. So going through that whole process, it for me – it gave me a lot of confidence around I understand how to do a long-form project, mm. I understand what's required from it um, and so that was good. But it really – and at the end of it, I was really like I have no money. Mm-hmm. I have to go to the investors and say you're not getting any money. Yeah. Um, Were you prepared for that at the beginning? Yeah, I yeah. was. I have to admit I was really open and honest because mm-hmm. I didn't want to raise expectations yeah. as well. So what, that's why I wanted the experience of being part of the film to be enough even if they never got money back. Um, My lawyer also helped me kind of manage expectations on film business, investing in the film is very risky. I mean, did it make it even harder? Because I guess that like you're starting to add bonuses, right? So Mm -hmm. you're saying like, okay, not only am I making this film, But now I'm like running some form of theme park where I'm giving people (laughs) an experience. It was a lot. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, so at the end of it, I guess, so I worked a lot of... um, yeah, I just worked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end, I was really burnt out. 
I was emotionally burnt out. I was financially burnt out. My relationship was in pretty dire straits. Um, and the whole experience, I'm like, does it, why, it does not have to be, why is it this hard? Yeah. And it really felt like I had done everything the right way and what I had been taught and yet it was still a, a massive – and I, I guess from my perspective as well, the, the disappointing thing that I find when I look back on that experience is that no one was knocking down my door for mm. me to get directing gigs. Mm-hmm. I could not get another job. I could not get my door in an, my foot in the door in an agency. Like no one wanted to hire me and that was pretty – Devastating. I this think, is post, post? Post after the film had screened basically at festivals around the world. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like a lot of that was maybe I wasn't in the right headspace after I finished it because I was pretty, you know, wrecked. Mm. Um, but also I think it is endemic of the film industry, which is pretty sexist and mm. homophobic. Mm. And so I was definitely out of the box where I feel like I'm not saying I'm that talented, but I feel yeah. like with people with other equal amounts of talent yeah. had other opportunities. And so unfortunately for me at that time, I was, and then I got really bitter. Yeah. yeah. Thank God you didn't interview me then. Cause that was, <laughs> I mean, it could have been more fun. Who knows? What, what year was that? So I finished that film in 2007 and yeah. And then pretty much from there I went straight into, well, I have to find a job now and I went to arts adjacent industry so I actually that's when I worked at the Melbourne Queer Film Festival Mm. and really helped other filmmakers and also kind of I guess used my selling skills and I would say for anyone who is comfortable with selling it's a pretty great way to always have a job because most people don't like doing it. I mean sales people have always got a job that's always got a job I'm sure in commercial radio Mm. in you know all of these industries if you are comfortable with selling and so I kind of went into arts through that way and kind of recovered around this time I feel like coming full circle is around the same time my brother um who is a a software designer a software developer he was exploring this new way of doing things called agile software development and also eric reese's book lean startup came out and he was really excited by this process that he was working with and he of course said hmm you know what, Kylie, I just think that was a really dumb way to make a film and yeah. you should really be making it this way. And I was like, well, that's bullshit and you're yeah, you an idiot. You don't know what you are talking about. <laughs> you I don't know what you're talking about. I will say uh, before meeting Josh, uh, lean is just what I wanted to be and agile <laughs> is what you are on the footy field. <laughs> and I've never heard it. And then I meet Josh and he's working in Vado's, you know, yeah. lean, start. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'd never heard these words before and, mm. th- and then it makes sense this book and your, you know, connection. I love the approach because it's taking something over from the tech space mm. into an, a, an industry and it's it's how we disrupt things. We do things differently. I was listening to a guy talk today about sustainability and he's on this mission to just, ch- you know, change the way that we look at, you know, um, sustainability. And he was saying we... We, we go in and we disrupt the current system. We do it a different way because the system, even if it's got some use, it needs to be changed. And mm-hmm. so I guess that's why filmmaking is very old. This mm. going to LA and pitch, like this has been happening Hollywood. This is hot. That's real Hollywood, Hollywood right? Style. And it's actually what we're taught still yeah. in this country, traditional filmmaking. If you go to film school here, yeah. you are being taught that model of basically uh, so it's pre-production or it's actually yeah. really development, mm. pre-production, production, post-production, distribution. And I guess what 
I'm suggesting with lean filmmaking and the method that my brother and I have worked on on applying different methodologies is you actually can do that simultaneously in an iterative manner mm. but in a smaller minimum viable product version and test and learn and build from that. Mm. So iterative, test and learn, never words I'd used in my vocab <laughs> until I met Josh as well. well yeah. Well, I bought iterativestorytelling.com. Just a bit long. I couldn't spell it. I can't fucking spell it. I mean, I think that's when Josh and I, when we first met, it was actually for me so refreshing because to be able to speak with someone like Josh, whose filmmaking talent is amazing and his, you know, his skill mm. in that and to also then understand what Agile and Lean was, it was such, yeah. uh, it was literally, it was so exciting for me because most filmmakers are like, well, like I was when I first heard of it, I'm like, well, that's bullshit. You don't know what you're yeah. talking and about. And the other thing too is everyone uses lean pretty loosely. Like and agile. And oh, agile. Yes. And so that's the thing is I, would come, I was coming in with, um, you know, hearing a couple of GMs at a tech company say lean and say, oh, I'm fucking doing lean. And then <laughs> you have Kylie deconstruct what you're doing and like realise, okay, we're not we're necessarily not there yeah. yet. Uh, but I think that the thing that resonates with both of us is, that uh, lean doesn't mean that it needs to look shit. Or cheap. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's one of those things which is, um, which is lost that people think when they think of lean, mm. they think that it needs to have an, a negative impact. Mm. Mm. Where it's like it's actually a way of creating better, better stories. It's about like putting the story and the audience, like I think the mm. audience being a big part of it as well mm. um, ahead. So you can move faster being lean. You can try things faster, you know. You can also remove, you can pop the bubble, right? Like so like where as creators we, you know, like think about the time that you spent, you know, in the regional town making mm. the film with, you know, 10 mm. crew or whatever. It's like mm -hmm. you, can, um, you can create a world and forget the fact that there's actually going to be people who you want to watch it. Yeah, and to be fair, this is, and I think this is why this is a great opportunity for creators at the moment is back when I did make my film, and we're only talking just over 10 years ago, mm. um, is so YouTube was in its infancy and Twitter didn't, had only just started. Yeah. Facebook was really new. Crowdfunding didn't exist. Podcasting wasn't a genre. Yeah. Like all of these things have Mr. changed. Mr. Mike 97 so. wasn't born. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. No, I think he was. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Oh, no, no, no. 2007, are you kidding me? It was, you were born. You were, <laughs> you were five. Still baby. No, you were, yeah, you were seven. You were eight. Mm. You were, oh, probably had a Minecraft fun. server yeah. or something like that. So, um, <laughs> it's so, interesting. So there's so much has changed yet, um, particularly in filmmaking, mm. um, we are still really stuck in not using the technology to our full advantage. We love mm. gear and we love tech and that has compressed the cycle, mm -hmm. but we haven't really thought about the process of making films, i.e. how we organise the work and who does the work. And as you say, this Hollywood system of how we crew films and mm. the order has actually been around for 100 years. Yeah. And often when I talk about changing the way we do things, there's, I feel a lot of resistance and I'm like, you know, just some person came up with this once. I mean, yeah. It's not, oh, my God, it came down from on high and this yeah. is how we make films. Some person just came up with it because it was it worked at the time yeah. and there's no reason why we can't question that now. Is, it, is part of the problem like companies or organisations like Screen Australia, like you go onto their <laughs> website to try and fund a film and it actually fits perfectly with that 100-year model? Like how do, yeah. we, fi how do yeah. we finance these types of things? So, yeah, there's a couple of things that come up from that. First of all, um, the funding organisations are not there to help filmmakers. Mm. Step one, yeah. they're there to fund cultural product 
that speaks to something that they can sell to government. Mm. So they've got a government kind of prerogative around what that needs to be. And that's not to say they're good or bad and they certainly serve a purpose. Um, Though I would say that unfortunately in this country, once again, because it is so reliant on funding, is that it makes you very stuck. There's nothing worse than having to fill out a bunch of forms. Mm. And often if you're a creative person, that's not to say that you can't fill out forms. But it's we a can't real, fucking fill out no, forms. Yeah, it's a real skill set. It's yeah. a real skill set to be able to fill out a grant application mm. and then to wait three months yeah. and then to go through an interview pro- and then you get – I mean, we're talking like have you already made four hundred shows yeah, yeah. in the time it's taken yeah, exactly. to have a grant approved. Yeah. And so, if you're waiting for that, it really stifles you creatively. Uh, creatively, if you're succeeding in that way, fantastic. This isn't for you what we're talking about. Um, but I just find that even for myself, it really once you're waiting for that money, mm-hmm. it's really stifling. So I guess with lean filmmaking and coming back to what you're talking about, the audience who we're, we call fans and sort of what you're wrestling with as well in terms of how you monetize your podcast is how can you as a creative connect with people who are interested in what you're doing and so normally I do a Venn diagram uh, that has essentially I'm not saying filmmakers get really scared that it's like but I have this story I want to tell and everyone's gonna Mm, love it it's like well you might that's true but essentially can we find something that you're really interested in and then can we find an audience that also intersects with that? Yes. And then can we find a way to do that within our constraints? So part of the great way of doing something iteratively is you can start really small in a really lo-fi way, see if you can connect with an audience or fans, and then build from that and apply the production values when you know that you're going to get a valuable return on it. Mm. Well, it's, it's giving you the best shot at having any of these stick. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. I really like this approach. I mean, I've come from a bit of a school of cowboys when it comes (laughs) to filmmaking. I feel like some of the shit Josh has rattled off to me, his knowledge from the days when cameras were much different and you had to feed in the cord that would play out the (laughs) footage. And then there's a cord. I I shot my film on on, on a tape. Yeah. Yeah, And so, but I think there's a, I think filmmaking and I think about, the, the kid who picks up the video camera yes. and them not even feeling like they want to be a filmmaker because they don't think that like that, mm-hmm. right? They just think a video, I make a video. Yep. And then it's mm-hmm. like trying to work out. I've gone through the period of like when I start following a filmmaker, I want to be a filmmaker. And then I'm just the video guy I'll shooting from the hip and then I like, oh, no, I'm, I'm definitely not a video videographer. Mm-hmm. And so I've just, I've gone through these periods and, you know, I've, I've landed on, I, I'm a filmmaker. It is whatever it is for me, but I've definitely kind of had definitely haven't been a part of that confused space of mm. old school filmmaking, which is I think been to my advantage. And you're yes. doing the yeah. exact thing of saying, "Hey, filmmakers, don't get caught up in that yeah. shit. Yeah. Come over here, and yeah. this is it." And I mean, I think a great practical example of that is YouTube. I'm obsessed with YouTube. I love YouTube. I haven't had my free-to-air TV plugged in for like six years, part of also my bent of minimalism and what can I do less of so I can watch more YouTube essentially. Do you have YouTube premium? I do have yeah, YouTube great. premium yeah. from uh, as soon as it was available. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to work out whether I was the, I'm the only one. I no, feel no, like YouTube, I, I went off YouTube premium for a week. No. The amount yeah, of pre-rolls, <laughs> I couldn't yeah. actually believe it. Well, certainly because now the content on YouTube with uh, 
creators who have been on their uh, brands and certainly Mm. creators who have been on their longer long form content is certainly being rewarded. And that Uh means there's multiple, there's a pre-roll, mid-roll. And I mean, if you're watching longer videos, there could be eight ads. See, I got YouTube premium before the mid-roll thing. Like I guess (laughs) the longer Mm. content, the mid-roll, and so it was like the first, two weeks ago was the first mid-roll that I'd ever experienced. So I went, is oh, yeah. this a new video? No, and I was yeah. like, hang on, then it picks it back up. Yeah. So it's- originally I got a premium because of the premium content of some of the creators. Yeah. And then I started experiencing without ads and I'm like, I can never go back. Yeah. And if, look, if you don't watch a lot of YouTube, it's probably not valuable mm. to you, but the amount that I watch, and I guess because How much I, are we talking? <laughs> I mean, do do I you like, watch it on the TV? Do you have a smart TV? Sometimes I do have a smart TV, so sometimes I watch it on TV, sometimes I watch it on my phone or my tablet. I mean, look, there have been days where, like, you binge watch Netflix, mm. but I binge watch YouTube, and Definitely. nothing makes me happier than finding a creator that I haven't discovered, yeah, and yeah. I can just see there's, like, I know 200 videos yeah, to watch so of this. Oh, it's so good. So what was point about YouTube. No, I just, I was, I was very curious. Oh, YouTube, sorry. I was just curious about YouTube premium. Yeah. Because like, I guess like. <laughs> Back on that. Yes. Well, mainly, well no, mainly just because I think it's interesting, like the audiences and people willing to like the, what we're uh, willing to do as customers and stuff is really interesting. Like what yeah. we're willing to pay for nowadays. I think. We pay, pay for to remove ads. Yeah. And I wonder what the, I mean, Mr. 97 uses an ad blocker. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, which unfortunately doesn't work on smart, TV. on the t- on smart TVs. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Right. And so like, I guess that what I love about you, Kylie, is you've got the business side and the, the art, the creative side, which I guess when you talk about making that indie film, you're mm. very much in the art Mm-hmm. of it and sort of this is a something it's almost like identity type mm-hmm. stuff which Definitely. i guess mm. to tommy's point too is so much of what filmmaking is is about identity it's about being the cinematographer or being like we get so attached to all of that stuff. i'm pretty lucky that i was not really ever attached to yeah. that i was attached to the idea of the vision of telling my story yeah. i have not ever been so interested in, in the tech side of things mm-hmm. um but I think this is where YouTube is so fantastic that I love is that really YouTubers for the most part would never call themselves filmmakers mm. unless they are an actual, unless they're the Pete McKinnons yeah, or yeah, the yeah. Casey Neistats, like that kind of crowd. Mm-hmm. But for most YouTubers, they're YouTubers and they are doing this model that filmmakers could learn so much from where essentially they're putting up a piece of content, mm. they're getting a response that they can actually see through their analytics when does someone fast forward? When does someone drop off? When mm-hmm. does someone start? Yeah. Um, they can see comments. They can see subs. They can see likes or dislikes. And then they can iterate and keep building on that, exactly what you're kind of doing with your podcast. Yeah. I mean, you can't do it. You can't think your way out. You can't think your way to 400 episodes. Yeah. You have to do it. Yeah. yeah. The only time a YouTuber has ever put their hands together to make a frame <laughs> is when they're taking the piss of old school yeah. filmmakers. You know what I mean? Sure, did yeah. you have a headshot? Uh, or a I'm sure. I've, that defi- of like that. I've definitely like, done sort yeah. of oh, like doing this shot. The, the, square, do it, like. the square finger thing, but you're definitely. <laughs> L shape with both. Thumb yeah. and um, index finger, and yeah. then put them together oh to make God, a frame. A I'm sure I've done that that before, and then brought it into Photoshop and made the square black and white. Oh, of so course you did. <laughs> <laughs> it was I love it. Absolutely beautiful. Genius. I mean, one of the things like talking about like, going into the analytics, looking at the subscribers, all that sort of thing. What's your thoughts on uh, the algorithm? Like, mm. so say specifically for YouTube, you could easily 
using all of that data could be uh, sort of directed into a certain way of creating content. Yeah, 100%. And I think actually as YouTube has matured and those that have been on the platform for a long time, there is a lot of Mm. that. And actually, to be honest, now if you really want to be a successful YouTuber and, you know, grow your channel and have a million plus subs and be making your main income from AdSense, which is really hard to do, Mm. uh, you really need to be having at least a million views a month Mm. to really Mm. make any kind of real living from it and also a very specific type of content because obviously um, it's now all graded by YouTube, whether it's family friendly Mm. or, you know, swearing so that we're done. We're that, done. Yeah, I know that can really affect your <laughs> yeah. um, your AdSense money, and so yes, you can go pretty deep into it. Mm. Though I guess the smart YouTubers who are doing it as a full time gig or trying to do it as a full time gig, um, and certainly like a platform like podcasting, is how do you diversify your income so that you're not reliant only on advertising, but you're selling merch, mm. you're selling tour tickets, you're mm. selling a live experience, you've got an online course, you've written a book. You know, it's unfortunately, and I would say with filmmakers as well, the reality is this is what's happening. Musicians have to do it now as well. Yeah. This is just the yeah. new reality. People expect content for free and that's not going to change. And if you want to add value to those people who are prepared to pay for it, then you need to find out what they're really interested in. And I think maybe the minimalists are a mm. great example of this um, in the, so I really, I love the minimalists. Mm. I have followed them from pretty much the beginning. I have bought every single one of their books. I was there at their live tour when yeah, Josh yeah. was shooting and I bought the VIP experience. Oh, I wanted yeah. the hug. Yeah, I, filmed, I wanted the I Q&A. The hu- I'm sure I've got footage of the hug. I've got it on my Instagram. <laughs> How much was the hug? What did you do? <laughs> so we, I, that, I also hugged Josh. Yeah. But I, was free. I was wearing the easy rig. <laughs> it wasn't a line item. Uh, $30 plus. No, 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 but, no, but I mean, literally, I mean, I think that VIP experience might have been yeah. $180. Mm-hmm. So that had a pre-show thing. And like, and I and there when the minimalism documentary came out before mm. it was on Netflix, I was there first day because I'm on their EDMs yeah. on their message their emails. It's mm. it's launching on Vimeo. I paid twenty four dollars to watch the documentary as soon as it came out. That's what you look. That's what we're talking about when fans. So audience is very broad, mm. and I think it's easy to go. Oh, there's an audience. It's hard to kind of pin that down. But if you're thinking about fans. It's a freemium model. So mm. there's a whole bunch of people who can happily enjoy your content for free and then how can you find people who really love what you do and help? And I have absolutely zero qualms in spending money on them. Yeah. I loved it. I loved all of that. I, yeah. I would do it well, all again. Well, that's what I wonder about, the doing it all again because I was talking uh, to Christian Hull who's mm-hmm. someone who's built yeah. a f- fantastic audience um, and sort of a, a community. And the interesting thing that he was saying is, uh, he'd heard from from someone that you only get one crack at like from a um a, an online personality thing. He'd sort of heard people say you only get one chance to go out and and make that money from the event, mm-hmm. and it's quite hard to get those other ones. Is that well? Look, I think it's once again on the individual. I think he's mm-hmm. really great, and Tanya Hennessy, I think, is another fantastic. Yeah example of someone who's really trying a whole bunch of different things. And diversifying. I guess that's yeah, the thing. It's writing not like, a book yeah. and also doing the live shows that she's done with mm-hmm. um, Kristen. Like I would, you know, buy anything of hers as well. Mm-hmm. I think there is definitely going to be, your audience is going to change with time, right? And sometimes it's going to be more relevant for you than other times. So for me, I guess there are some things that I'm really passionate about 
but you do change. I think we were talking mm. about it earlier that we used to both be quite obsessed with Gary V. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, back in the early days, you know, I bought all these books. I was really into it. And now I feel like that doesn't – I'm not – I've moved on from that. That's yeah. not really interesting to me anymore. But he's got a whole new legion of fans. Yeah. So you, it's just about continuing to reconnect. I'm not sure there is one shot only. Yeah. That seems pretty sad to me. If but, yeah, because case. audience changes, yeah. as you're saying, right? And, I, and I've and i always thought about, you know, when someone says, find your – like work out who your audience is. And I've done some sort of thinking around what it meant because I was always like, oh, it's actually really hard to know who your audience is before you have it. But I think the thought behind who – it's it's who could your audience be? Correct. Not who is your audience. Mm. Yep, I just bogged, audience. I got bogged down in, is, bro, I don't have any. <laughs> and, and who could your audience yeah. be? So mm. that's when – you, when you're thinking about who could it be, it, it is just breaking down one more barrier that could get you started. To start yeah. making the and film also more. testing like, and look, we are definitely in the film community very guilty of this kind of. I feel like it's another one of these buzz, buzzwords. Find your audience, mm -hmm. like agile or lean. Yeah. It's like find your audience. That would be the answer. So yeah. what we would suggest in lean filmmaking, where what we're talking about, and that's what we used to call it, audience, mm -hmm. and yeah. we've since learned that people have that exact same feeling. So that's why we've kind of changed it to fans and potential fans is. What you want to find out from is not traditional kind of demographics or where do they live or how old they are, but really you want to find out where do they get information? How do they consume what I'm selling? Where do they hang out in real life? Will they pay for a hug? <laughs> yes, exactly. Will they? That's exactly right. So how And how can I, in an authentic way, connect with them to see if they're interested in what I'm doing. Mm. And can I really, and really you're collaborating. So if I can talk about lean filmmaking for a second, it's really hard to describe the entire process without kind of going through the steps. So part of this iterative model is that first of all, it starts with collaboration and that's collaboration with a squad of, you know, a small group of people. Gronk squad. Gronk squad, <laughs> perfect, it's a perfect example. That really you have all the skills mm -hmm. that are required to make a film. So it's not necessarily about the roles, it's about the skills um, and you can work collaboratively to do that. And it's more important to have that mm. than it is to have a script or to have, well, I'm suggesting you do this even before you mm. have any of that because as soon as you start having a script, you're shut, shutting down your creativity and your options. Then secondly, you want to make sure that you're, you invest in your story before production value. So how can you learn about what story you want to tell, what thematic you want to tell and really get that right because we do live in this incredible world of technology mm. where production values are actually the mm. easy part. If you can find the story and the story works mm. and then you add production values where they're necessary and you have the the audience is interested in that, that's fantastic. Really focus on being fan, fan first, really thinking about like they're really the boss. So in lean filmmaking, the producer or the director isn't the boss, the audience really is the boss. Mm. Like you are helping to creatively still make decisions and you still have to make those creative decisions. But ultimately, if you want someone to see your film, you also get to collaborate with them and find out more from them. And finally, you really need to focus on doing over planning. You could have spent a whole year planning out every single episode before you did a single episode of this podcast. Mm. We spent five years. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you but totally... And, but you actually learn. So any time that you can focus on... For example, I want to know who my I want to know what who my audience is. Well, how can I get something to them really quickly, mm. like a hoodie, and see what reaction that has, and then how can I learn and build from there? 
And then finally in filmmaking, um, we pull this all together. It's a make, screen, adjust cycle. So essentially you make a short version of the, well, a full version of the film in the lowest fi available at the time. You screen it towards your potential fans. Then you make adjustments based on that on what did you learn mm. and then choose together what you want, how you want to move the needle, and then you repeat the whole cycle again. Yeah, I mean, that was a very long-winded no, explanation. No, well, I think it's it's exactly to the point of how we've done the daily talk show. Exactly, because we start, you know, we started with two USB microphones into exactly. a laptop, and then you know we we started doing video and all that sort of thing. And now it's very fancy. <laughs> yeah, and now we've overbaked it. But the uh, the, the team, st- I think the team stuff is really interesting. I mean, when. Uh, when you made the indie film, what was your relationship with Teamwork? Well, I mean, you mean my when I made my yeah. indie feature. So I was super traditional because it wasn't it wasn't really talked about mm. in it was just a more scaled back version of Hollywood. So I had followed the advice where essentially it was two characters in one location, mm-hmm. and I had a crew of of I think it was thirteen mm-hmm. plus uh, two cast members. I mean, seriously, that is ridiculous. I mean, yeah, yeah. I would literally shoot that by myself now yeah. and maybe yeah. have a boom operator. And I just think that you get really trapped in, well, we have to have a script supervisor. Mm. We have to have a, you know, a whole grip department. And it's actually, we're so lucky that actually now the cameras are so great and, I mean, the cameras could have been great back then as well. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you just don't actually need that if you're really clear about, I don't have to do everything right in the first go. It's a performance. Too. It becomes a performance yeah. on set. So you end up like, yeah. oh, what is a set meant to look like? Oh, well, we yeah. need to have this person. Yes. I need to. Yeah. I need to say action and all that. Even those, <laughs> even saying action and yeah. stuff like that, I find really interesting. Yeah. Because it's um, a lot of the terminology that's used in filmmaking, we don't use at all when we're doing a production because <laughs> the thing like what is more confronting for for someone to say action especially yeah, if you're trying yeah. to get yeah. this authentic performance yeah. if you or even authentic um you know just on screen personality or someone just talking mm. being themselves saying cameras rolling and sound and all like all the, yeah, yeah i mean way to make it a far away from a fucking conversation <laughs> yeah. as you can possibly get and so yeah. i guess that's a interesting thing too which is yeah. lean can also mean getting closer to an authentic experience so a part of rethinking and deconstructing the entire way of making films is that i always felt on set that it is really stressful mm. it's not it's very hierarchical um people think that that's where films are made on set but actually films are just really executed on set and it's the least creative place ever most people hate it and it's really boring and then moments of frenetic activity where you have to be perfect so you sit Mm. around waiting for the lights to be set for two hours okay like action be perfect yeah okay stop don't be perfect for another two hours come back and be perfect and the whole and it's long hours and it's stressful and it's you only get really one shot at it Mm, so i guess part of what and it only works in a very specific way what we're really trying to do with lean filmmaking is how can we actually make the process more um, creative and less like that. Mm. So it's not huge big risks, huge big all the money yeah, on yeah, the day. Yeah. You've got 100 crews standing around looking at you. How are you supposed to make a creative decision and have all the answers? So really that's where you strip it all back. Mm. You take it really small. The days can be really short. It, it doesn't 
whoever shows up shows up, you know, oh, our DP hasn't shown up today. Oh, I'll just shoot it on my phone. Yeah. And the next time they come. Where was it? We'll shoot it. <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> Had a better project. He's <laughs> on a Hollywood set. <laughs> I heard an actor talk recently about his experience working on a film where uh, script obviously written before you get there. But they <laughs> yes. went they went off and they had so much fun ad-libbing and it, they didn't use a single take where they were ad-libbing where they were having the most fun mm. because it wouldn't cut because it's like a instruction manual for a piece of Ikea furniture. Mm. We chucked in a few better instructions mm. but we had to get it gone because back there we worked out exactly how this has to be done. Mm. Yeah. Which you've put – so I like that you – have you just reordered some steps – make a lot more sense in in the process. I mean, there's a lot more mm-hmm. to it than that, but mm-hmm. some of these things, right, it just sounds like you've put them in such a better order and sort of thrown out a bunch of the <laughs> ones that don't really need and stripped yeah. back and now you get like those four principles mm. or values that you use. Yeah, so I guess big picture, the values that um, I talked about, about collaboration and um, story before production values and fan-focused and doing is – there are so many decisions that you make when you're doing a creative project and you're making a film, there's so many moving parts that you can't have an answer for everything but rather you can have guiding principles yeah. so that if you get stuck in this whole, oh, we're obsessing about the script or the story, oh, we're in it and that feels actually like a safer space sometimes yeah, as a creative yeah. to just get stuck talking yeah. about it, we go, oh, actually, you know what, let's just try doing this. Let's, let's get up on its feet and try it this way and try it that way. Um, we have really tried to reevaluate every part of the process. And I guess another interesting example is the way that you cast. So in Lean, part of the philosophy of Lean, which comes, you know, it was kind of really started in the late 60s, 70s with Toyota in manufacturing. And it's really about how can you reduce waste? How can you make things more efficient and reduce waste and provide value to the customer? So all of those things that you think might be valuable but add no value to the customer, how can you really make that more efficient? So if we're looking at something like casting, it's actually a very inefficient process. Well, first of all, you write a script and you make up characters and then you've got to try and find actors who can play those characters that you imagine in your head and then they have to be available at a certain time and then you have to construct all of these things to make that happen. What we're suggesting is actually on your squad of your small team to make, school, uh, to make the film, are actors so actually your actors are already cast as part of your squad mm. so to start with you can start with a really small squad you know two actors is great because it's fantastic to have someone to play off and then you're writing your script or your story or you're developing it actually using their skills and actually mm. using who they are you don't have to cast mm. and so you're actually creating something that is organic for them so if they really love improv well, guess what? All that improv that you did is not going to be wasted. If yeah. they do prefer something that's more structured, well, you can write a script. And so it's really about trying to use the skills of who's in the squad. And look, everyone says, oh, but it's my story. I'm so passionate about it. I'm sure we've both seen it, yeah. is that people can come up with a story in one day and get super obsessed with it and really passionate about it. Mm. We quickly grab onto ideas. We love ideas. Actually, it's much harder finding a team to work with. Mm. So maybe it's a shift from being a director to being a facilitator? I would definitely yeah. say it's like a coach mm. or so I guess in the agile world it's kind of like a you're a servant leader. Uh-huh. So really your job is to solve problems so and to help coach people to make decisions. You're not making the decision for them. You're part of the decision-making process. And it sounds 
like it's filmmaking by committee, but in fact it's a much more rigorous way of making a film. So we have a whole bunch of tools for how to do this that we've completely uh, used the best of from Lean and Agile um, so that you can really make decisions in actually a really robust way. You can't hide anymore and I think that's really confronting for a lot of mm. people because on set you can actually really hide. It's hierarchy. It's someone else's job. I don't yeah. have to do that. Not and my problem. Not my problem. Yeah. I tried. They didn't listen. Oh, well, I'm just going to undermine them by, you know. I mean, it happens in it happens on all parts of the crew, but particularly with actors. It's like they didn't like that take. Well, I'm just going to do this shit take. I'm just going to only give them one take mm -hmm. and yeah. fuck up the other takes because this is how I'm controlling the situation. So that can – it's trying to remove all of that invisible hierarchy and trying to make all of that transparent – so that you can make decisions better together. You've probably, I mean, had a lot of interactions with f filmmakers and you, you may have an idea, a general sense of what what generally people's version of success when they make a film is. Mm -hmm. what, and what do you think it is? So this is a pretty big question in that I think it comes back to something we were talking about earlier is that traditional filmmaking and why we don't think about the audience and it's not filmmakers' fault is actually we're taught not to because actually our job is as a creative person is to sell to the producer or to sell to a distributor or to sell to a studio so that actually we get our money from selling our idea or our concept to someone else who's going to fund it. And then it's their job to sell it to the audience. Yeah. So you're actually quite removed mm, in a so filmmaking sense from an audience. So our audience is producers. Yeah. And in some ways, uh, uh, when you're making your feature, your audience were the people who gave you the five grand. Correct. Absolutely. Did it feel like that at yes, the time? Yes, it really did. Yeah. <laughs> it really felt like that. I felt mm. a lot of responsibility. And I guess traditionally success is seen as, well, I made a gorgeous looking film. I think production values are very highly valued and it doesn't matter how many people see it. I completed a film. It looks gorgeous and I'm going to get another job from it. It looks great on my showreel mm. and that's success. Obviously, you know, as a, you do, if you're interested in telling stories, obviously you do want people to see it and you do want to have mm. that experience, but it's so disconnected currently mm. from the responsibility of that. And there are plenty of people who have made films that have not made money. I mean, films are, it's really hard to make money from films anyway, who have gone and have a career. So it's, how, it's actually how successfully can you raise funding and how successfully can you make something look really gorgeous? Yeah. I mean, this is the classic case of being um, pushed someone else's version of success onto us. And we can look to the left and feel like, oh, I want that success, but it's actually not what we want. Mm. And then it's not the steps that they took. It doesn't actually equate to success. What do you think like YouTubers, these young people, because I think they, they have a different version of success. Agreed. They're just, like you said. And not so young YouTubers. Yeah. 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 I do. I think the thing that I love, once again, why I love YouTube is because it is redefining success. Though so obviously now it's just our nature that we want to make everything into a job and kind of, I don't know, doesn't Seth Godin say that like well, marketers screw up yeah, everything or absolutely. it might be Gary well, no, Yeah, no, Seth says that and Austin yeah, yeah. Kleon saying like everything has to be a side hustle now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, you can't just that. have a hobby. You just yeah. don't have a hobby. <laughs> yeah. And so, but I do feel like the relationship and the six, and so I often find it really interesting when I'm talking to people from both of those worlds that often filmmakers are terrified because of how they've been judged on production values um, is that they look at YouTube often and go, 
oh, look at those crap production values. Mm-hmm. I would never produce something like that because that's how they've been judged. Whereas YouTubers go, look at what I'm, I don't need production values to tell yeah. my story because I'm connecting with my audience. Those filmmakers are wasting all their time. And yeah. so it's a very different, it's a completely different attitude. It's a different sport. It is. It's almost being yeah. like watching a game of soccer and saying, why don't they just pick it up with their hands? <laughs> you know? It's kick like, it. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can kick no, it. No, no, with the hands. I was, they had it in their hands at that no, you point. Missed a no, 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 I got it. You had it in your hand because they picked the it up ball. and then they kick it like that. Can't do that. Can't That's Gaelic that. football. I was a heady, yeah, I was let's a never do sports missed. metaphors no, no. on the show. I mean, I, that's not my field. I had to say it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if um, if people Google you and they click through to your Instagram account, they'll see that uh, Kylie Eddie's account hasn't been that active lately. <laughs> it has not. And so I'm curious because I've ha- I've gone through uh, moments in the past year, i.e. a complete uh, social media retirement. Mm. Uh, what has been your relationship with putting out content on social media? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because I have definitely taken a break the last six months. So I think what happened was when I was running the meetup group, the Lean Filmmaking Meetup Group, mm-hmm. which was the largest filmmaking meetup group in Australia for about four years. So for like 2,000. We had nearly, it was 2,700 members in Melbourne, mm-hmm. but we also ran one in Perth. So, and I also had a day job. And in that space of about three and a half years, I personally ran 50 events, which obviously I had to do mm. all of the marketing copy, yeah. all the social. Thing. And then yeah. I went to my day job. And guess what my day job was? Marketing festivals yeah. and being on Twitter. And That's like, crazy. and so basically my professional life and my side hustle yeah. were really deeply engaged with social media. And then a couple of years ago, we decided that we had learned everything that we could from running the meetup group and we just had to make a really tough, it was a really tough decision because honestly I loved running that group. Mm. I met awesome people. Yeah. I got a lot of personal validation from it and often the work we're doing is um, is really hard and so it was lovely to get some actual feedback from people but we just didn't have time and I really wanted to focus on writing the book. How can we write the book and take the next step? We closed the group. And then at the end of last year, I moved away from the festival world to take a bit of a break from that as well. And I just shut down everything. (laughs) I think I was just really burnt out and tired and wanted to try something different. So I've been doing a lot of inner work, which, look, probably it could translate to Instagram. I really do enjoy that platform. But I just really wanted to take the time from myself. And I found it actually really Lovely. Can I say, was this around the same time that you stopped listening to Gary V? <laughs> because Gary V yes, is preaching a hundred pieces of content a day, a day yeah. or you're irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> Document everything. So we're all irrelevant in this room, guys. Yeah. Yeah. He'd be pissed yeah. at you. He'd be fucking pissed. <laughs> but you don't exist in yeah, yeah. No, not at all. So the um, uh, how much of the thoughts around the lean filmmaking and the meetup was centred around monetization. Were you thinking about monetization? Yeah, we definitely were. I mean, in the first instance when we were running the group, our motivation for doing that was, I mean, first of all, we started it, so I guess it was about maybe seven years ago We and it was maybe six years ago where we were really active. Is these things we're talking about, even now they're radical, mm-hmm. but six years ago it was really, really, like I literally had filmmakers yelling at me if they had tomatoes, they would have thrown yeah. them at me. Like it was really full on. Filmmakers are babies. Oh, <laughs> it's a they are yeah. very babies. So every single objection yeah. to this process, 
I have heard it for years yeah, yeah. and now I've got just a lot better. And people are actually more interested in now because I feel like we're kind of in yeah. the whole movement has kind of got a little bit more prominence and everyone likes to throw on the word agile. Um, but you love pushback too. Like if I, I can give I it do back do to like, people. I do at, love at, it. At the, yeah. <laughs> I you do love you it. lean into <laughs> well, any I possible mean, pushback. I feel like, um, you know, it's great to have an alternative perspective. Yeah. And I had been to so many filmmaking panels, for example, where everyone wants government funding essentially and so everyone's very polite because no one wants to fuck off the industry that <laughs> yeah. they're basically getting their bread and butter from. And when you say, well, I don't want that, I don't need that, it was really liberating and so it's really exciting to be the person who is uh, dissenting. I find that really fun. Yeah. So you're right, I yeah. do quite like <laughs> quite like that so I've heard it all what was the point where was where, where was I heading with this well I think like the um the monet the monetization oh, the monetizing. The monet so yeah. in our first instance thank you in our first instance we were just like no one's interested in this can we get people interested will they come to the next meetup can we talk about this we tried selling uh workshops and with mixed success and we just felt because we've got so much we're really kind of trying to prove something so difficult for people to wrap their brains around that it is has been super hard to monetize and I guess the last straw for me around the time when I'm like we're closing the group um was we ran a accelerator program for filmmakers to make a develop feature films in three months around their day jobs and we did that and then I tried to sell that and I could not get a single filmmaker to fork over the cash. Yeah. And that's when I'm like, you know what, we've got to rethink this. Mm. And now I'm really like, well, the way we're going to monetize it now is let's go back to old school. I'm going to write a book. Mm. People expect to learn things in books. I love books. Mm. Obviously the book's not going to make any money, but hopefully the book will then lead to, you know, we're looking at doing online courses or actually doing training programs. Like that's the next step that we're going to try and test once again. We're not sure it's going to work, but yeah. we're going to. That's what we're going to be trying next. And I think that's interesting around like when you're picking your fans or your audience. I mean, how important is it working out whether? I mean, because filmmakers, like especially in the independence, like they've got no money. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, they have money for a nice camera. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So, and they do have money for some training. Mm. And they do have money for things that they do care about. Mm -hmm. So how do we make this something that they care about? Or potentially, which is the other direction that we're exploring, is how do we take what we've learned and actually do it more for a corporate audience? So really introducing creativity to a corporate audience. So this year we spoke at the Agile Australia conference, which was a really fantastic experience. What was that like? It was amazing. It was like legit on the stage, oh, great. lights, it was really fun. And my brother and I, my brother's actually based in Perth, so we have to do it remotely. So we were both in the same city and we just spent the weekend at St Kilda Film Festival. He came over for that and we've been presenting to filmmakers who are obviously our audience, but it is sometimes like there's a lot of explaining. I mean, babies, you usually got to <laughs> explain, explain But it's super fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then we go to Agile Australia and it's completely different because they know what agile yeah, they is get it. Yeah. they get it and so they're asking completely different questions what were the and questions to them like it was really exciting well hilariously at the end of our session someone um asked and i look my brother could not have been more happy because he's also a bit of a sassy sarcastic bastard mm. um is that someone said oh that all sounds great for independent we kind of use one of mm. the independent films that we did in the accelerator as an example but how would that work on a ho in a Hollywood film? How would you scale up 
My brother was like, well, remember 10 years ago when we were at this Agile conference for the first time yeah. and everyone was like saying, well, how could how this scale up for enterprise? Yeah. And yet here we are. ANZ's doing exactly. Agile. Exactly, literally just thinking ANZ. Yeah, yeah. Everyone is doing Agile. Can you agile. just quickly explain for my mum at home who I know, she's got no idea what Agile she's is. She's already yeah. turned off probably. <laughs> like, this so is no, I mean, I, I like, still doesn't, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. when I say mum, I meant me. <laughs> <laughs> but Sorry, just, I didn't just mean to call you out. I mean, I, mean, I don't even, the, the thing is that like the, it gets used in so many different ways and there's so many different flavours in some regards. Like you've you've obviously got Scrum and like there's so Kanban. What I, well, so what I would say is both of those are tools mm -hmm. to use Agile. So Agile is actually a mindset or a philosophy. So similar to our values that we have for lean filmmaking, that's what Agile is. And actually if you you could probably Google it, yeah. that this, it's called the Agile Manifesto and it was written by 12 software developers in the 90s, I want to say. Maybe 2001. The, thank you. Um, and essentially it was a bunch of software developers who sat around saying, how can we do software better? And the manifesto is really about it's like people over process. It's about um, – testing with our customers. It's mm. about making sure that we uh, make small versions so that we can get real feedback. So there's a list of these 12 principles and that is actually the foundation of Agile. So it's really about iterative, customer focus, building and learning, people over process. They're kind of like the key foundations. Yeah. Well, you think about like especially at that time and being in technology, you think about like, developers just getting in their head like you know obsessing over code and forgetting that oh like someone's gonna yeah. eventually you know have to click a button here or do this or how would that and I guess it feeds into the UX UI like all mm -hmm. of these different things as well and so now that kind of principle of from agile software development has been broadened out into agile project management or mm -hmm. into other kind of industries obviously we're trying to apply some of that to filmmaking um, but I guess it's just, yeah, it's really about making sure that always be shipping, always be testing, always be connecting with your customer. Where do you think people mostly go wrong if a business says, oh, we do agile? <laughs> uh, what is it? What, I mean, what's the telltale well, sign that the they're doing it wrong? the telltale sign for me mm -hmm. is that they have a hierarchical structure yeah, and they're yeah. in silos. Mm -hmm. So um, team being in a collaborative team, it's essential to have all the decision makers on how you're going to be working and a big part of Agile is the people who are working closest to the product have the deepest understanding of the product. So that's where this kind of, I guess, servant master idea comes in where you're, as a boss, you're no longer telling people what to do. You're listening to what the team needs to do to deliver on the outcome. So, yes, you choose the outcome, but how the team gets there that's not really up to you. Mm. So as soon as I see an organisation that still has mm. lots of hierarchy in it and lots of managers and, you, oh, yeah, we're really agile, but you just have to fill out this procurement form. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty – you're dead in the water pretty much. Yeah. And so what – from going back to the social media stuff, so you've t you took six months off, you're spending time from a, a personal point of view, that sort of internal work. Where are you at the moment <laughs> in that journey, do you think? Well, it was a really big step to um, – because obviously we want to walk the talk 
And obviously we believe in it. I mean, I 100% back when my brother first introduced it to me and I was like, this is bullshit. I'm now fully evangelized. I'm fully, I'm fully embracing. And so when we're writing the book, there's a platform called Lean Publishing, Mm. Lean Pub. And so we're writing the book in the same way where we're basically putting it out there as we write it so we can learn. It was a really big deal for me to push publish on the first 39 pages Mm. like two weeks ago. And, you know, I had been resistant to doing that because of what that felt like. I'm making a public declaration. I better finish the book. Mm. You don't actually have and to finish <laughs> this ask me with the Seth Godin. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I'm just, well, at least give it, uh, give it a try. So yeah, I absolutely. am feeling like as we're writing that, that I will want to engage more on social to talk more about it. I am interested in maybe having meetups again and re-engaging. So I definitely think that's probably going to come with that. But writing a, you know, writing any kind of, large project Mm. it does take a lot of deep thinking work and it's really easy to get distracted like social's so fun it's so like it's so distracting and lovely so you're spending you're still spending time looking at people's stories and doing Uh, all that sort of stuff Mm. yeah yeah i am still i try and um i'm trying to limit it Mm. somewhat and actually i preferred it when i was posting a lot because i feel like that was at least a creative outlet Mm. so yeah i think once again for me more doing and less consuming um, is part of the challenge. She's back on the Gary Vee. Ben, right? <laughs> <laughs> just always good contenting. No, I mean, the, I, know, I know exactly what you meant about Gary Vee and you kind of come in and out. I definitely am inspired from seeing him, yeah. even if it's just to post one or two more bits of content, not your hundred, Gaz. Yeah. Fucking get real. But, yeah. you know, this is one for you today, one piece of content. Love it. We'll get that yeah. out there. But it's oh, just, this is a pretty big piece of content. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can chop this up into a hundred bits <laughs> if you want. Definitely. <laughs> that would really I, work for me. I don't have to do anything for the next hundred days. How about <laughs> your next hundred <laughs> posts that all go out today and it's just bit... One minute, one minute, <laughs> Actually, one minute. How many, on Instagram. Yeah, how many minutes are we at, Mr. 97? 60. All right, oh, 60 perfect. bits, 60 perfect. bits so far. Uh, but we, could, we just double it. We get to get yeah. into 120, I mean, 30 <laughs> second pieces. The thing is that uh, <laughs> it's normally in the, the middle area. It's in the grey area, right? Like I, mm. I read Cal Newport's, you know, yep. um, books, you know, Deep Work yeah. or Digital Minimalism and then you, you all of a sudden you shut everything <laughs> off and shut mm. everything down mm-hmm. and then... You know, like I've had the the Gary V experience mm. over the years, and I think there's it's some somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing um, Tommy and I were looking at doing a documentary. We started doing research on sort of alcohol consumption in Australia. Mm-hmm. This was a couple of years ago before the podcast, and I saw this bell curve based on uh, it was around uh, mental illness. It was basically saying people who uh, have high consumptions of alcohol are more likely to experience issues around mental health. Mm. But then the other interesting thing is uh, people who had no alcohol at all also were more likely to experience it. And something about this middle ground, I was like, mm. fuck, maybe. I, like I didn't drink at all at that point. Mm. Uh, and now I'm a f- five days a week kind of guy. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. But I, I started going like, oh, you know what, like maybe – Maybe these extremes that I'm working in yeah. uh, are actually making me sicker. Maybe I need to just fucking chill out a bit. That's which, so yeah, interesting. Which I find yeah. hard because for, yeah. for me some of these things are actual, like me having sugar, me opening that floodgate, it, it, it just dominoes. I think what's been really fascinating for me in the last six months is I made an active decision. So I was working in a festival event space which is – 
I mean, it's so easy to be a workaholic in that space. Mm. Also in the film industry. Yeah. Uh, it's like, ah, yeah. oh, am I a workaholic because I'm in festivals and film or am I in festivals and film because I'm a workaholic? Yeah. And I really wanted to question why I was doing that, set some boundaries for myself and really think about what I wanted to be doing. I just couldn't mm. do it in that mm. environment anymore. So that in itself has been a massive shift for me. And what I found is I just want to be a little bit kinder and gentler to yeah. myself and to others. Absolutely. And sometimes that means I'm going to be posting every day. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes mm. I listen to podcasts every day um, for, you know, a month. Mm. And then I'm like, I don't want to listen to podcasts anymore. I'm going to read a book and I'm just, you know what? That's okay. Yeah. Mm. And just to be a bit like more gentle. Yeah, I get really obsessed with something. Yeah. And I go pretty deep in and then I'm like, oh, moving on. And that's okay. Yeah. So I'm just trying to be a little bit more uh, gentle with myself, let go of the hustle, yeah. let go of the grind and just be a little bit more gentle. Oh, definitely. I mean, right. what, what's your relationship with ambition? Because I think mm. that for me what you're saying resonates and I think that Tommy would agree that he sees me going so deep on certain things and can see where it can get unproductive or whatever. Uh, but then when I completely remove myself, then I'm like, am I losing some of that am ambition? Well, I'm not sure if it's ambition for me mm -hmm. that I do get. I think I'm just recognising that I am a person mm -hmm. that if I'm interested in something, I'm going to get pretty obsessed about it and interested in it and that's okay. And some people like having more generalist mm -hmm. kind of skills and that's also okay and I'm just not going to give myself a hard time recognising that if yeah. I watch eight hours of YouTube videos about yeah. And I'm not watching YouTube video. I'm watching YouTube videos about YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's very meta. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. And I can also let go of that. I guess ambition for me is, and I'm probably in a slightly different space in my career. Mm. I guess I've never really made this, you know, if you look at my CV, it, it's a bit of a all over the place. I also really, very impressive though. Thank you. But I really make decisions based on what is exciting to me at that time and what mm. can I learn from. And I don't really care about titles or status or even money in that kind of way. But I do care deeply about am I doing something with integrity? Am I doing something that's creatively interesting to me? And I guess with Lean Filmmaking as that's ongoing is, is it something that's going to help someone like it? helped me mm. how can I help others to maybe the film industry is really a tough tough industry like any kind of glamorous industry where it's very competitive there's got to be a place for for other people who are like me who are maybe not driven by those maybe traditional things and how can I contribute to that mm. it's fucking awesome. refreshing don't you think yeah, like I after what I we love listening to you uh, I, mean, I, I mean, is it going to be an audiobook? <laughs> I mean, if you think about where we're like, TJ, if you think at the start of the week and yeah. what we like, you know, we're in a the convention center with 5,000 oh, yeah. people yeah. and it's yeah. 10x and it's oh, like yeah. you're not doing enough and yeah. it's a, to, like it's refreshing to know like there is the, the, other, mm. the other side. What do, you, what do you think? Yeah, about? I think, the, you know, the guy – the girl that lives on a farm that's quit everything and writing this book and you read it. I'm not it. living on a farm. No, no, not you. But then it's like you <laughs> see them. Uh, she did and, a regional, and, like the film. Yeah, it was yeah, just that's like, it. Because like that's their success and then you're like, oh, that sounds appealing to me. And then you hear the other person that's a hustle. It's like these are all just ver people's version of success. So they're articulating what they've experienced, yeah. right? And it's like the being into Gary Vee, not being into Gary Vee, being into 
you know, someone, you know, Seth Godin, not being in Seth Godin, we come into these people and we find them and they resonate at a certain time, you yeah. know. Might be into Brene Brown for a heap of time. It's Love like, Brene. Yeah, you know, I'm too vulnerable now. I've got to go the <laughs> other way. You know, so, I don't know. So I think that's where it is. And you're making something for someone at a specific point of the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I've really let go of, I mean, I deeply understand that what we're working on is not for everyone mm. and that it's for a very... It's for a group of people who are looking for maybe an alternative and a, a different way of doing things, and that's absolutely okay with mm. me. Um, I also, because I guess I'm really grateful that I discovered minimalism about the same time that I was kind of making my film and really Leo Babado's work yeah, uh, is really amazing and Zen Habits and his philosophy on things um, really had a massive impact on my life and all of that has definitely fed into this. So I think... Having once you start living a little bit outside of the norm and give yourself permission to do things slightly differently, I think it also does give you permission to think about success in your own way. Mm. So, for example, I haven't, I don't own a car. I haven't, haven't had a car for six years. Actually, around that time, about six years ago, I separated from a long-term uh, relationship, and I basically it was the right time for me. I had been exploring minimalism for quite a few years. And I was like, I'm basically letting go of 90% of my possessions. So I walked out of that. You took it very literally. (laughs) I really did. And actually I went and lived in a hotel for five months because I was like, I was at the festival. I didn't have time to really even think about that. And I walked out. I didn't have a stick of furniture. I didn't have – basically all of my belongings fit in the back of a car. And I'm – like this is when I'm quite – I was over 40 when this happens. Did they make your bed every day at the hotel? (laughs) Well, when you live in a hotel – it is well when the hotel that I lived in, which was a very fancy art series hotel, it was the best. Was the mini bar free? No, <laughs> sadly, we're, we're, we're three D yeah, dogs. Yeah, no, yeah, still have to pay, pay for a mini bar. Actually, yeah. I got them to take the mini bar out. Really? Yeah, because I was there for five months, and so wow. you do get included. Uh-huh. They do clean your room, make your bed once a week. So mm-hmm. fresh towels, fresh linen, and they clean every week. And it was. Before self-care was yeah. a thing, it was like the best thing in terms wow. of self-care to be able to just live in a hotel for five that, months. That is pushback Airbnb generation if I've <laughs> ever seen it, isn't it? That is so awesome. Good. And so yeah. And so I really, I guess what I discovered in living, basically you're living in one room, is that, well, I really don't need that much. I'm okay with this. And then when I did eventually feel like I was ready to move out and get an apartment and I had to purchase every single thing from a teaspoon to a bed, mm. I was just very, very conscious. Like I didn't buy bookshelves. I didn't buy pots and pans. I did, Like mm. I just have very – and I'm just really clear about what I care about. Yeah. Um, so that has really helped to redefine what success means to me or what's, important, just what's, what's important to me. Did you um, work out any hacks, you know, like when I'm <laughs> in a hotel and I'm walking past the cart where they're cleaning, I'll just grab a few more coffees or I'll grab a few little biscuits. I mean, I was obsessed with stockpiling the toilet paper. I will not lie <laughs> because I was just like, oh, they're cleaning. I better just yeah, get yeah, some. Grab one I of those. Did, yeah, I did have that a lot. Grab a few cookies, grab a few yeah, hot chocolate. <laughs> that's what I always do. The concierge does know you, oh, yeah, obviously, because yeah, you're yeah. Um, when mm. you're living there. So it's a slightly – and room service is really easy when you're obviously living in a hotel. And you just – like I used to pay the bill once a month, right? 
it's easy to go through a lot of room service yeah. when you're only paying once Hopefully Trev's credit card wasn't on. <laughs> I wish it was. That would have made it so great. I mean, this, the hotel thing, I just want to speak about for yeah, like a yeah, few yeah, more yeah, minutes because yeah. yes. this is an absolute, this has rattled me to the core. Did, you, did so, you ever boil an egg in the um, kettle? So here's the great thing. The hotel that I stayed in, so it's the Blackman, um, yeah. which is just on St Kilda Road, part yeah, of the art it. series. And so first of all, they they kind of, um, they're called artist residencies because they're awesome at marketing and I'm a sucker for good marketing. Did you at least have a canvas set up in the room? <laughs> I did not. Helps. I'm writing my book. Um, yeah, yeah. No, so, um, you know, it's a beautifully artistically creative, you know, obviously Blackman's work is around the building and his obsession with uh, Alice in Wonderland, so lots of little rabbits everywhere. So it's just a great environment. It's not real, not real. Like, <laughs> or not real rabbits? Not, not real not rabbits. Real, okay. Not real rabbits. Painted rabbits. Okay. Painted rabbits. Yeah, I've yeah, been there. It's cute. It's, it was really cute. It's really great. And the room that I stayed in, it did have a full kitchen. Oh, so great. there was a full-size fridge. There was a stove. There was, you know, stovetop and a sink. And so basically it's just like a really basic kind of version of a mm. kitchen. So I did cook on occasion. But here's the thing, I guess. I'm just not really interested in cooking. Yeah. yeah. Some of that. And yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. And so I only need minimal supplies. And even now... I have made a conscious effort to cut out categories of things that I'm not interested in. So, for example, baking could mm. not give two shits. Yeah. So I don't have to have lots of pans and pastry brushes and yeah. whiskey things, whatever they are. I love the like just cutting out categories. Cutting That's out a, categories yeah. is awesome. Yeah, Organised August, I should cut out a bunch of categories. Oh, What's your first? Yes. What would you? Do? Well, yeah. I mean, there's, you've cut out a fair few without <laughs> even doing yeah. it. Yeah, cut you out you my don't family. Wow. Okay. What's some categories? Oh, what are some categories? Yeah, what, like, what, what so, you I, so how I looked at it is was, so, you know, baking was a great category for me because I'm mm. not interested. Cooking, mm-hmm. I simplified because basically I just have half a dozen or so recipes that are really easy to make and don't require any special equipment or special spices or anything. So I won't buy a one-off spice for something. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. I live in the city and yeah. I eat out a lot and that's more important to me. Yeah. Um. Another category I cut out, so weird category is nail polish. You might also have yeah, to cut yeah, this character. Yeah. It's like you think about nail polish and you're putting on nail polish, or you may not, mm. but it has other things like you have to take it off again and you need nail polish remover and you need wipes. And you know, there's a whole category of things. So if you just decide not to wear nail polish, you can cut out that whole category. That's great. I love um, it. I don't no longer wear perfume. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I read a fantastic book called The Case Against Fragrance by... Uh, Kate Holden, Australian author, and the day after reading that, I'm like, I'm never wearing perfume ever again. Sorry about like, the incense. Yeah, the incense <laughs> is a bit stinky. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I do have yeah. quite a strong reaction yeah. to fragrances, but uh-huh. also just like the fact that I had not ever thought about why I, I still do wear mm. deodorant, just yeah. to be fair. Yeah, yeah, okay. um, no one has said to my face that I'm stinky, so <laughs> I don't know. That could still happen. Um, obviously not having a car completely cuts out so many awesome things. I don't have to worry about petrol or insurance mm, or mm, mm. is the car getting broken into or yeah. I don't know, I'm married. Of, there's so many ca- with books, I guess, because I do love books, but I really minimise my books. So now I just have one shelf for books and I don't go over that and then I have a Kindle. So I digitise everything. Yeah. Basically everything that can be digital I try to. What about eating out? Do you have rules around if I'm going to get food, I have to sit in at the restaurant or anything like that. <laughs> no. Okay. Because <laughs> I just eat like yeah. Because I uh, I do a fair bit of like delivery type stuff, and then yeah. so I was like, okay, maybe if I want to restrict it, like at the moment I'm testing something where I take a photo of everything that I eat. 
Yeah, I mean, I have gone through face. I did go into meal prepping pretty mm. hard. Yeah. And now I've <laughs> backed off on that a bit. So essentially, I currently, my system is, I like, because I don't have a car either. So I buy my groceries online. I do a big shop maybe once every six weeks. And then I spend five hours making my five recipes that I like what to What are make. the five recipes? I was like spaghetti bolognese <laughs> and what else? tuna pasta. Is that being key for a while? Yeah. And then I just freeze it. Okay. Right. And then my goal is always I love festivals and events and I love living in the city so I can t- – and I work in an industry where I can really take advantage of that. Mm. And that's why I keep the food in the freezer. So if I'm home, great, it's there. If it's not and I, suddenly I go, oh, there's a show, there's a film happening tonight. Do you want to come to a film? I don't have to worry about any food going off and I just eat out. Oh, that's great, right, yeah. So that's kind of – and once again, I have chosen I'm happily single. I'm also child-free by choice. And so those things also cut out pretty major categories of yeah, items yeah. as well that yeah, I don't absolutely. need. Oh, you get a lot of shit when you have a kid. Exactly. Uh, so that is a harder category. No, no. <laughs> it's a hard category to cut out. in real shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Ushis uh, too. You can probably categorise the shit. <laughs> Far right. Uh, yeah. Talk, yeah. Talking about films, Melbourne International Film Festival's on at the moment. It is. I haven't, I haven't been in a few years. Have, mm-hmm. uh, are there any films that you would recommend going and seeing? I would recommend Every single person in this country going and seeing The Australian Dream. Mm -hmm. It's the Adam Goods story. It's coming out in cinemas uh, August 22nd and it was the opening night film. They're doing some encore screenings actually this weekend. I do not care about the AFL at all. Um, and category that was cut. <laughs> well and truly cut. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it ever existed as a category. To be fair, that was easy yeah, to let yeah, go of. Yeah, yeah. Um, sporting equipment is another category <laughs> I really let go of. You don't need rollerblades yeah, or yeah. lacrosse your, equipment. knee pads from yeah, no, uh, cricket. Don't, don't need any of that. So, but it is an incredible film because um, Adam and Stan Grant, who wrote it, it is, it's not like homework. It is actually like the brilliant start to a conversation. It's so heartfelt. It's really empathetic. It is really eye-opening and it's really coming from a place of compassion, not from mm. blaming, and actually to really have tough conversations about systemic racism that we have in this country. This film is an incredible place to start. It is really a gift to Australians and the world. And I've been so I've been mm. going to opening night of Mythic mm-hmm probably in the last decade. And, you know, opening nights are hard to schedule. I do not wish it upon anyone. It's tough to get it right. You've got a lot of sponsors in the room. You've got a lot of, you know, the VIPs. And schedule meaning picking a film that will show yeah, that night. Yeah, that will show yeah, that yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to program opening nights, um, you know, and, you've, and you want to showcase the festival and it's probably got to be Australian or some connection. And sometimes there's a lot of polite clapping at the end of films. <laughs> this year... I have never experienced anything like it. I'm kind of getting chills thinking about it. At the end of the film, there was this moment of silence and then everyone just got up on their feet, mm. applause, standing ovation through the entire credits. Yeah. I have never experienced that at Myth. And then the lights came up and so there's like 2,400 people in the space. An experience. And no one wanted to stop clapping. Yeah. The lights are up and we're like, no, motherfucker. <laughs> we're, we're clapping. We're going to keep was, clapping. Was Adam, Adam there? Adam was there. Oh, Stan how, was, how was there. And they, and it was it was kind of awkward, but we were like, we don't care. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, everyone yeah. just kind of turned to it. Actually, there were about 200 of um, their guests from their family and friends. Amazing. And it was a really incredible vibe having them there. And everyone was just like, just going to clap in your direction. Until yeah, you exit. It. You're just yeah, like, yeah. whenever you 
feel like it. Just go exit. That's we're gonna so keep going. funny. But it was really amazing. People didn't want to leave and just, yeah, it was really emotional. So please go and see it. Is it, it a biopic or a doco? Or so it's it a, a doco and yeah. it really follows, I guess, the story of um, how – you know, Adam's background and how he became a footballer and then really the racism that he mm. experienced. And um, for people who are into sports and AFL, they probably know a lot more about it. For me, it was really interesting to see that perspective of it. And then also what can we do about it and what did he do about it and how can we start a conversation? Mm. Well, he had nothing to do with the AFL for quite some time. Yeah. It, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, how hard. That's an, it's an amazing, amazing story. From just hearing the little bits about it now, I want to say it's it's I yeah highly yeah. recommend yeah right. Kylie thanks for coming on the show <laughs> we should I feel like we need to get you back yeah. very soon just because we could I'd be love talking to come back. yeah can you bring me one of your frozen spag piles please <laughs> <laughs> yes I'm cutting the category of cooking so I need you need your help I do like that idea uh, it's a daily talk show hi at the daily talk is the email address on just quickly uh, on the film is it like a release. Village cinemas and stuff. Or are you going to have to go to special? No, I think it's going to be a broad. Yeah. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure, yeah. but I'm. It's. I'm confident it's going to be a pretty wide release. Yeah, that's mm. cool. It's got a lot of publicity, so I think yeah. hopefully they. So hopefully go see it that. as soon as it comes out, so mm. more people will have the opportunity to go yeah. see it. Yeah, I'll definitely yeah. see it. And uh, Kylie, we know that you're not posting that much on Instagram, but you do have leanfilmmaking.com. Mm. If people put in their email address, they'll. Will they get access to the start of the book? Or Absolutely, how does it work? yes. Yeah, so if you put in your, if you sign up to our e-news. The next time we update it, I'll send out an email and you can get free access to the book. Amazing. So good. Awesome. It's a daily talk show. We'll see you tomorrow, guys. See you guys.